if you have your Bible, um, and if you don't have a physical copy, uh, you can use a Bible website like BibleToGateway.com or download a Bible app. Uh, find Ezra chapter 7. Uh, we're going to be hanging out in Ezra again. We launched a series here about a month ago in Ezra and Nehemiah called Rise from the Ashes. And if you're just joining us at Lebanon Christian Church, you may be asking the question, why why Ezra? Why Nehemiah? Aren't those old books? And you'd be right, they are old. Uh, they date back about 2,500 years, the writings. The writings of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, shared uh, the same space in the Jewish Bible and still do because they tell a singular story. They're the reflections of two faithful followers of God uh, on the return of exiles from Persia, which had been Babylon, to the city that God gave and the land that God gave uh, to them. It's a comeback story. And that's why we're hanging out there because the story we see for the Israelites, the people of God who had been in exile, they were in exile because of their collective sin. They disobeyed the instructions of God. Their hearts had turned from him. Uh, because of that, they had been disciplined by being taken away to captivity. And God then leads them back to their land to continue his rescue story uh, by raising up people like Ezra and Nehemiah. And while our circumstances are so very different uh, from uh, theirs 2,500 years ago, um, we still experience our own exiles. Uh, all of us in this room will or have uh, experienced exile to sin. Uh, our wrongdoing, our disobedience will, will lead us further away from God and we'll experience difficulty and hardship. But in our world that faces the global effects of sin, uh, we all experience various forms of different exile. Um, some right now, uh, you feel the weight of a financial exile. Uh, things were tight for you before, and now with the price of goods up 8% or more, uh, you feel that uh, with an even greater intensity. Uh, maybe you know poverty. There's relational exile. Uh, some in this room have experienced breakups, uh, heartbreak, uh, divorce, abuse, and the list goes on and on. And the beauty of what we see in Ezra and Nehemiah, the lessons that we see in them can help us in our own comeback stories, even though we're 2,500 years removed. And my honest hope for this whole series in Ezra and Nehemiah is that you would, one, see the timelessness of God's word, the relevance of God's word, even though his spirit directed these words years ago, um, but that you'd also come to experience the hope, the peace, the joy, and the same life that we see the people in Ezra and Nehemiah experience. Because the God of Ezra and the God of Nehemiah, uh, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that means that in character, he has not changed uh, from what we see happening in Ezra and Nehemiah. Today we're going to be hanging out in Ezra chapter 7 that I had you turn to. Uh, we left off last week, Tom Sears shared a message uh, about the importance of the Word of God in our comeback stories. When we think about the exile, the primary reason the Israelites were taken off to Babylon initially is that they had turned away from God's Word. They had received the commands of God. They'd received the instructions of God. And they said, you know what, God? I think I can figure it out on my own. I don't need you. And they started doing things their own way. And to get their attention, God takes them to captivity. Well, guess what happens among the remnant? Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, others, is that they reorient their lives around God's word. And as they start to follow God, 
their life actually is better. And so they then champion his word and it like a light leads them in the midst of their darkness and helps guide them back uh, to where they are. Uh, For Ezra and for Nehemiah, the word of God was so important. And if you and I are going to make our own comebacks from whatever exile we are in, um, the word of God must play a prominent role as we not only learn it, but we also live it. And I want to pick up there because what we see in Ezra is an incredible example of this. uh, And then he does something even more. Uh, Ezra 7 says, in the, in the kind of the timeline of Ezra and Nehemiah, the book of Ezra begins with a man named Shesh Bazar. There's all kinds of crazy names in, 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 in Ezra and Nehemiah. He's leading this first wave of exiles back to Jerusalem and to the land of God. Uh, following him, then Ezra leads a wave, and we see that in Ezra chapter 7. And then later, Nehemiah will lead a wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. And so Ezra 7 kind of shows us how this first or the second wave with uh, Ezra came together. There's a really neat verse in chapter 7, verse 10, that really shows us the full focus, the mission, uh, the, the, the whole purpose that, that Ezra was committed to uh, in honoring God. And I want to I begin there. Ezra 7, verse 10. It says, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Just very succinctly, clearly, it it says this is Ezra's mission. He was devoted to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. I just want to start with that statement, for Ezra had devoted himself. That word devoted is our English translation of the phrase that occurred in the original Hebrew. If you were to most directly translate the original words in Hebrew, it would be this, that Ezra set his heart on the study of the word of God or the law of the Lord and its observance. He set his heart. Uh, I like that because the idea of setting something is this picture of establishing it. Think of a a stone being laid or concrete being poured. It just, it sets it. It's immovable. It won't change. And for Ezra, he set his heart. The, the, The heart, even today, is kind of seen, even though we know it's an organ technically that's beating in our chest and pumping blood through our bodies, we often speak of the heart as that place of decision making, that place of feeling, that place of thinking, and, and that was the same in, in, in Ezra's day. And so to set his heart, he kind of anchored his decision making, his life, that place of belief in the study and the observance of the law of the Lord. That's huge. It shows us, with the NIV translators, that he was devoted, like, like his mission was so focused. It was all about learning God's word and living God's way. He wanted to trust and follow God, learn his word and live his way. So he set his heart on the study of the law of the Lord and observing the commands. Uh, another way to think of it, uh, some of the YouTube tubers that uh, my boys and I still watch, and nothing educational, I promise, um, 
but we enjoy. They'll use this phrase. Uh, they talk about full sending something or they'll send it. And what they mean is not that they're writing a letter and they're putting it in the post, you know, to the, to the mail and goes off in the post office. No, it's this idea of going all in for something. And so uh, maybe they're, they're standing on a cliff and there's water and it's like, you need to full send it. Just go all in, like jump, no reservations, just you're all out for it. And so really that's what's being communicated in Ezra 7 is that he is all out. He is full sinned. His mission, what he's devoted to is the study and the observance of the law of the Lord. I think it's a great time for us to even ask that question for ourselves. What are you full sinned for? What are you devoted to? What are you committed to? What for you have you set your heart on? I particularly like that phrase because we just switched the, switched the words around a little bit. Uh, maybe you've heard someone ask you, what's your heart set on? I've heard people talk about graduates. Some, some of you have family members graduating. Some of you are graduating. And uh, you'll say, my, my heart's set on going to this school. My heart's set on this type of career choice. My heart's set on this purchase or uh, dating that person or marrying that person. And we talk about us being set on on, our hearts set on. So what is your heart set on right now? What are you fully committed to? What are you willing to full send it for? For Ezra, it was the study and observance of the law of the Lord. And what I love about Ezra is that we see these two things together, the study and the observance of the law of the Lord. Uh, Tom shared this last week is that for a good and faithful follower of God, Jewish person, they could not separate the study of the law of the Lord from the observance of the law of the Lord. They always came together. They were always a package deal. They were always intertwined. They were inseparable. That's kind of unique for us because in our Western, Western culture, we love to analyze things and separate them out and bullet point and build outlines. And so we like to talk about, well, this is what it means to study the word of God all right, what's the application? Now, how do we obey the word of God? No, no, study and observance went hand in hand. They could not think of learning his word without also faithfully living according to the word. The, the two went hand in hand. And for Ezra, he is full sent. He is on mission to learn God's word and to live God's way. That's his mission. That's his focus. That's what he's, he's about. That's what he's devoted to. But that mission doesn't stop there. There's another part. Look at the end of verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord. He was devoted to. He was learning God's word, living God's word, and teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. For, for Ezra, it wasn't just about learning the word of God and living according to the word of God. Those were inseparable for him. But because those were so impactful, he also had to teach them to other people. Here's the picture. You have uh, Ezra, the exile. Ezra, who's experienced, along with his fellow Israelites, all these hardships in, in Babylon and now Persia, uh, the difficulty of life outside of the place where he was intended to live it. That's what exile is, being removed from where you were intended to be and kept from being there. He's experienced that hardship, and he knows that as he's making his comeback, the word of God has been so essential. It's been so instrumental. Just, just studying and observing it was helping him make a comeback. And he knows that he can't keep that secret to himself. He has to share that with other people. 
Imagine knowing the way out of a dark room or the way out of a trap and, and not sharing that with someone else who's also trapped. Like he's like, no, this is part of the comeback. I want you to know how to make the comeback for yourself. I want you to know how to be rescued and how to return and to rise from the ashes. And so he is dedicated not just to learning the word and living the word, but to leveraging his life to help other people learn the word and live the word, to learn God's ways and to live God's ways. He wants to trust and follow God and help others trust and follow God. That's his mission. That's what he's devoted to. That's what he is full sinned for. I want to rewind uh, in my life to around 2005, 2006. Um, it was a really difficult season uh, in, in, in our life. And really, I wouldn't even throw Audrey in it. It's my life. It was that season of life where you're faced with a number of decisions that will affect the full course of your life and your identity. Up to this point in our life, we had owned cars. Um, we had a Mazda Protégé, 1998 Mazda Protégé, uh, stick shift. Not, not exactly a sports car, but peppy and zippy, whatever that is. It would go fast. Um, we had a Scion XB, and I don't know if you remember what Scion XBs were. They were made by Toyota. We called ours the box that rocks. It was shaped kind of like a toaster is what they've been nicknamed. We were one of the first two families in all of the United States to have a box that rocks because my dad worked for Toyota and got us in on a raffle to be able to lease one. And so we're driving this cool, in my opinion, maroon box that rocks, this kind of zippy peppy Mazda. And now we have two boys. We have strollers. We have pack and plays. We have jumpers. We have bouncing things. We have balls. We have diaper bags. Uh, we have clothes for days. We have everything. And guess what they don't fit very well in? Little zippy cars and boxes that rock. And so this crisis came into my life where I had to decide, would I be a minivan man or um, would I be a cool man? And um, I ended up becoming a minivan man. And I thought it would be justified because it was a Dodge Caravan Sport. I think I have a picture of it. Uh, yeah, there's nothing cool about that. Um, so we, we had a guy in our church, his name was Don. He had a grandson that wanted a zippy peppy car because that's what young men are supposed to have. And he had this minivan. He was willing to kind of make a deal to where his grandson would buy that and then we would buy the minivan. And so my crisis began in around 2005, 2006 when I had to drive a minivan. The minivan's an interesting story though because Don had taken meticulous care of our minivan. And when I say meticulous, like, that doesn't even do it justice. Like, Don would um, wash his van, this van, weekly. Um, he would wax it about quarterly. Monthly, he would do a thorough detailing. I'm talking, like, new car, like, detailing. Like, it smelled great. It was incredible. Um, my, my dad had taught me a little bit about vacuuming out of the car. But my dad was kind of heavy on the armor all. And I learned the hard way that it doesn't go on the steering wheel and it can make things really slippery. But, but, but Don, he knew how to really detail a vehicle. And so we bought the car from Don, immaculate condition. And, and, and Don continued about once a month to come by and pick up our van and take it to his house and wash it and detail it for us. Like it was this, on the outside, it seems like this incredible situation. After the first couple of times, I began asking Don, hey, Don, can we just do this on my day off? And I would love to learn 
how to detail the van because I don't, I don't know how you're doing this. Like, I, I don't know all the nuances and I want to know what you know. And guess what Don's response was? Time and time again, it was, no, Craig, it's just easier to do it myself. Uh, I don't have the time. What Don was telling me is that it was more inconvenient to take the time to invest in me to teach me what he knew how to do. And sadly, what I've learned in my life as an American is that for far too many of us, that's how we approach life. It's just easier to do it myself than to invest in someone else and take the time to teach them what I know. And I'm so glad that Ezra didn't have that philosophy. I'm so glad that Ezra didn't say, you know what? I I know what the word of God says. I know what the law of the Lord says. I know how to live it. But you know what? I'm gonna keep my secret to the comeback for me and the rest of you guys can just kind of figure it out. I'll I'll watch as you put the armor all on the steering wheel and slip through the intersection. Like, you can just figure it out on your own. I'm so glad that Ezra didn't do that because of what Ezra did, the world has changed. We, we may wonder how, how, how does Ezra, how does an exile have the courage to make his mission not just studying the law of the Lord and observing it, but actually living it out and sharing with, with people so that they can be changed But if you read in Ezra 7, you realize that Ezra was able to fulfill his mission, learning, living, leveraging his life to help other people learn and live to trust and follow God. Because he was a man who had a clear sense of the authority that he carried, this authority that brought courage and conviction to him. You find the hint of this authority for the first time in Ezra 7, verses 1 through 5. If you have your Bible out, I'm gonna go ahead and ask you to do something really quick. I just want you to take a quick glance at verses one through five. If you're like me, you first notice that there are a bunch of names I probably don't know how to pronounce. Like, what can Ezra 7, one through five teach me? But I think if you'll hold on for a moment, you'll see the impact of what Ezra is communicating. Ezra 7, verse 1, after these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Saraiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, Come on, someone's got to name their kid Buki because I will enjoy saying that. Um, The son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Why do Buki, I can't even say it straight face, why do Buki and Uzi and Zadok and Sarahiah, why, why do they matter? What Ezra is doing is giving us a brief genealogy. He's tracing his lineage. For our, 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 our matters today, the most important names in this list are the first Ezra and the last Aaron. Aaron is the brother of Moses. Aaron is the chief of the priests. Aaron is the one who was set apart by God for his line 
for the priests of Israel to come from them, that they would represent God before the people and represent the people before God, that they would teach them how to worship and be drawn into a relationship with God, how to, how to live for him. Now, that's what Aaron was. And so what Ezra does is he traces his ancestry to show that he is in Aaron's line. Aaron is saying, I'm a priest. And so if you're an Israelite, if you're a person of Jewish ancestry and you're living in the land of Jerusalem following the exile and you're wondering, who should I listen to? You're probably gonna pull out Ezra 7. You're gonna say, wait a second. He's a child of Aaron. He's in the priestly line. Like he has authority from God. He's showing that I have authority. God has sent me. I'm here on his behalf. I'm here to represent you before him. I'm here to teach you the ways of God. An exile like Ezra can help not only trust and follow God on his own, but help others because he has the full authority that God gives him as a priest. But Ezra's authority doesn't stop there. Ezra's authority also comes from the king. Ezra chapter 7 Beginning in verse 12, there's a copy of a letter that was sent with Ezra, given to him, dictated by King Artaxerxes himself to commission Ezra to go back to Jerusalem and start teaching people how to live God's way and honor his word and and trust and follow him. Here's how it begins, verse 12. We know who it's from. It says, Artaxerxes, king of kings, Interesting, in my study this week, I saw that the Persians are some of the first among ancient people to designate their leaders, to self-designate themselves as kings of kings. It was a way of saying, um, I'm more powerful than everyone else. Artaxerxes, king of kings, this is who the letter's from. He's giving his authority. He says, to Ezra, the priest, teacher of the law of the God of heaven, greetings. And then he issues his decree, what he sends Ezra to do. And it's kind of summarized in verses 25 and 26. Here's what he says. He says, in you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. Basically, go establish your God's rule and your God's reign, teach people what you know so that they can trust and follow God like you trust and follow God. Now this is coming from a king who's not yet a follower and may never become a follower of Ezra's God. He's saying you have permission not just to follow him yourself, but help other people trust and follow him. And we see that Artaxerxes' heart isn't quite aligned yet with God because look at what follows. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. It's like, come on, Artaxerxes, slow down just a little bit, okay? He, he wants to see, though, Ezra go. He commissions him to go and to share who God is and what he's done and how to follow him so that other people can know who God is and what he's done and how to follow him so that more people can know who God is and what he's done and how to follow him. So Ezra, as an exile, moves forward with incredible confidence in his mission to study and observe the law of God and teach others to do the same because he has the authority as a priest and his authority from the king. And guess what? This man with authority as a priest and authority from the king, God uses to change the world. Because what happens is Ezra leads people back and they join the people that have already returned with Sheshbazar 
as Ezra stays faithful and Nehemiah returns with exiles, those people don't follow God collectively, 100% faithfully, but enough of them continue to trust in God that 450 years later, some of those descendants, grandsons and granddaughters and grandsons and granddaughters and grandsons and granddaughters are still following God faithfully. And one of them's name is Joseph. And one of them's name is Mary. And Mary and Joseph are engaged to be married. And Mary hears that she's going to conceive and give birth to the Savior of the world. And Joseph doesn't divorce her. Instead, he stays with her. And God's son enters the world because there are faithful people in Israel because Ezra chose to trust and follow God and help other people trust and follow God. The world has changed because Ezra took seriously the call to not only learn his word, but to live his word and to leverage his life that other people could do the same. And if you're not yet connecting the dots, let me connect them for you. That commission has not changed. You want to know how Ezra is relevant today, 2022, 8% plus inflation, conflict overseas? It's because our God is the same, and he still entrusts his people with learning his word and living his word. They're inseparable and sharing that with other people. That's how people come to know of him and his grace and his purposes, so they can share that with more people. There's this really neat um, uh, place, Matthew chapter one, I want to show you. As Matthew recounts for us the lineage of Jesus, I want, I want to point something out to you, Matthew chapter one. I don't have this first on the screen. In Matthew chapter one is the genealogy is um, recorded of Jesus. You get to know who his great, 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 great grandparents are. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. After the exile to Babylon. And then it lists people and their children and more people and their children and more people and their children. And it takes us all to the way to a child named Jacob who became the father of a child named Joseph who married Mary, who gave birth to Jesus the Messiah. How do those exiles from Babylon come to know unless Ezra is faithful to share? And I wonder how will our world come to know unless we are faithful to share? If you're already in Matthew, just fast forward to the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, a passage that many of you know well. And if you don't know it well, I hope that you'll grow to know it well. I want you to think about what we read of Ezra. Ezra devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees in Israel. And see how similar that sounds to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, being in verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. If you rewind to verse 16, you realize that Jesus is talking to his disciples. 
What's a disciple? Someone who trusts and follows Jesus, who's committed to learning from him to live like him. And what does he say to these who are learning from him to live like him? Hey guys, all authority's been given to me. Now I'm sending you out with that authority to do what? To go and make more disciples. You'll be disciples who make disciples. You'll be people who trust and follow me and you're gonna help other people trust and follow me. You're gonna do that by teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. As they turn to me, you're gonna immerse them in, in water. They'll be cleansed from their sins. They're gonna follow me in faith and they're gonna go do the same thing with other people. And just so you don't forget, I'm gonna be with you to the end of the age while you do this. Like you see the authority that we even have present in Ezra, present in those who follow Jesus. And he commissions them to learn and live and to go out and help other people grow to learn and to live. And and yet, sadly, we look at our world and I think part of the reason that we're in the trouble we're in, specifically in the United States of America, is that for too long, Jesus has been treated more like a commodity, more like a product that you add to your life. It's the American way, right? If, if, you, if you wanna have cleaner floors, you buy that floor cleaning product. If you, if you, if you wanna have you know, a better life, you get the right television, the right surround sound system, and the right chair, whether it's Lazy Boy or, or something else. And, and we just add products to our life that make our life better. And so we have you know, pushed Jesus as a commodity that you add to your life and your life just gets better. We, we, believe, we, we believed in a transactional gospel. If we just get people to look at a tract and to see that they're a sinner in need of God, they just add them to their life and life gets better. They get saved and they go on their way. But Jesus was never intended to be a commodity. He's never intended to be something that just gets added to a number of other things in our life. Jesus is a king. Jesus is the king of kings. He comes not to be added to our lives, but to rule our lives, to shape our lives, what we do, what we say, where we go. And we need to shift in our culture, not just to seeing Jesus as a product, but as a king that comes to rule our lives. And as he shapes our lives, we help others come to see how he can shape their lives for him to bring it all beneath his authority. And yet how many of us are intentionally investing in other people? How many of us are doing more than just, you know, inviting a person to church? And that's important, but how many of us are choosing to invest in the people in our homes, in the people in our neighborhoods, in the people in our community, in the people in our places of work to, to, to have spiritual conversations to help them come to see who he is and what he's done for us so that they can, they can see what he'll do for them as he, they shape their life underneath his authority. How much are intentional with making disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples? Or how many of us take the approach of the guy that sold me the minivan? Sorry, I'm okay doing it myself, but it'll take too much time. It's too inconvenient for me to invest in you and to teach you how to do what I'm doing. There's a beautiful moment in our home here, uh, probably two weeks ago now, um, in January, Ezekiel, our oldest, and myself, we started trying to make pens. Um, turning, we bought a little mini lathe and started turning wood to um, take with a pen kit and build a pen that you can write with. And um, Ezekiel and I have been doing this now for what three or four months, and slowly improving at it. And 
uh, there was a young man, uh, a friend of our, the boys that's, that's much younger, and I was really curious about how he could make pens. And I watched as Ezekiel invited um, this young man over one night and for two hours taught him uh, how to make a pen. It was so fun just to stand on the sidelines and watch as he let this young man, through trial and error, figure it out, making mistakes along the way, but he just simply taught the young man what he had learned and what he was doing and to see the smile on this kid's face when he got done two hours later and was holding a pen that wasn't perfect, ours aren't either, but that he could use and he was so proud of it because someone didn't just say, hey, you know what, let me just do it for you. They said, let me teach you, let me show you what I've learned and pass it along. And what would happen if in the church in America we said, you know what, this is not just the job of a preacher, this is not just the job of church leaders, it's not just the job of my kids, uh, leaders in their environments, but this is my job. I am to study and observe the law of the Lord and to teach it to other people. What would be transformed if we took the time, if we built the margin into our schedules to invest in other people? And do you and I realize that we have the full authority, not just of an earthly king. And one of my favorite things to do this week was to go back to Ezra 7 and look at the beginning of that letter in verse 12, and it says, Artaxerxes, comma, king of kings. But if you pay attention, it's lowercase king of lowercase kings. And I have to realize, and you have to realize, that we are children of the king, with a capital K. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And you have his authority, and I have his authority to go into a world full of exiles and help them see and know the Jesus that we see and know so that they can come and have his hope and make their own comeback and rise from the ashes and have what we ourselves possess. You have that authority. And not just authority from the king of kings, you have the authority as a priest. Like, wait a second, I don't wear a collar. That's not me. Is that far-fetched? Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Look how Peter addresses those who are following Jesus. 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen people. This is verse 9. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You were called out, you were made new, you were made whole so that you can go shine his light. Once you were not a people, but now you are. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. Verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. May God change you and may you help them experience him that they might be changed and change others. May we be disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. We are at a turning point in our nation, in our world, and it's time for the body of Christ, disciples of Jesus, to decide to fulfill the commission that Jesus has called us to. We can no longer obsess about knowing and learning and having the right theology that's separated from living for him. We have to 
put them together, learning his word, living his word? How can we say that we trust the words of God? How can we sit in Sunday school classes and Bible studies and, and groups and, and, and hear all this stuff taught and never take seriously the simple instructions of the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations? If we never share what we know, how will the world know? So my challenge to you, if you're a disciple of Jesus, will you start praying today for who it is you can start sharing him with and teaching what you know to? I'd start praying for the people in my home if you're a parent. If you're a disciple of Jesus and you're a parent, you need to accept that you are the first and the primary disciple maker in your child's life. It's not a children's minister, it's not a student minister, it's not a preacher. You have been called by God to be the first and primary disciple maker in your children's lives. That means you get to invest in them. You get to take advantage of the moments they experience, the heartbreaks at school, the difficulties in the world, and you get to help them trust and follow Jesus as you have trusted and followed Jesus. You are the primary disciple maker. Now, here's the reality. Some of you don't want to be the primary disciple maker because you're not really following Jesus yourself. And, and that should be a wake-up call for you. Will you trust and follow him? Will you allow him to shape your life so you can teach other people to follow him as you're following him? Will we take advantage of the workplace relationships we have? Will we see that God has not just called us to a specific place of employment to make a paycheck to pay our bills, but God has placed us there that we might influence people for him? Will you realize that God knew long before you did what house you were going to live in and there are neighbors around you that need prayed for. There are conversations need to happen. You have the courage to walk across the lawn and ask the neighbor about his boat and ask the neighbor about their lawn and ask the neighbor about their dog so you can start building relationships, not just to have a transaction one day where they're saved, but you care genuinely for them and build community with them to help them see who Jesus is, how he's changed your life and how he can change theirs. Will you pray for your neighbors? Will you pray for your children? Will you pray for the other people in your family? Will you pray for the people you work with? Will you take seriously your call to be a disciple who makes disciples, who makes disciples, who makes disciples? Because if we will, we'll see our world changed. People's lives and hearts will be changed. Going back to the, the pens for a minute, um, there was a moment last weekend that we had been making just one type of pen or pencil. It's called a, a slimline pen or pencil. It twists. And uh, last weekend was the first weekend I decided, let's try to make a new type of pen. And so I was trying to make a gel click pen. And so we made our first gel click pens. And uh, Ezekiel saw me do it. And he's like, I want to try. And uh, so he, he turned his wood and put a really cool design in it. And then he started to put it together. And I was walking past to go out and do something else. He said, hey, Dad, will you just show me really quick how to do this? And I said, well, but the instructions are right there. And he said, but Dad, if you'll show me, it will go faster. And I'm so glad he stopped me because it did. I had done it and I could show him more quickly than he could read it and do it himself. And I wonder what would happen in the body if we were people who slowed down and didn't just say, hey, this is what Jesus did for me, go read it for yourself, but instead took the time to invest in people knowing that if we show them, guess what? It'll go faster. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for these words of Ezra. God, I thank you for, even though they're 2,500 years old, God, they speak with such vibrance today. And 
Would you teach us? Would you lead us? Would you give us the courage to walk in your authority, to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples? And God, I pray for those in the room who yet are yet to know you, God, that they would reach out, whether it's emailing us or a QR code thing or filling out a card, and that they would express their desire to learn more about you and that we could 